scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 2, from verse 4 to 25. You can open your Bibles, or it is in the bulletin, or you can open your Bible app. Starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord made, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first one is the Fishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Huvila, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and Unix stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gayon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east from Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15, Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every, uh, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its space with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. in order that we can learn how to live properly in this world. And I know Genesis 2, as we just read it, I bet you there are dozens of questions that are going off in your mind. Um, 
We're only going to probably be able to answer a couple of those this morning given the time we have, but hopefully some of the themes that come out of there uh, we'll be uh, addressing further on. Things like what's up with this tree of life and this tree of knowledge of good and evil, stuff like that. In weeks to come, we'll be, we'll be uh, dealing with that. But let me, let me introduce this morning this way. If you've been watching the news recently or listening to the news recently, you'll notice that uh, there's been a lot of talk about values lately, particularly in the political sphere. Some, of, sphere. Some of you have heard of a guy named Maxim Bernier. He was a part of the Conservative Party. He left the Conservative Party to start a new party. One of the reasons he left to start this new party was because he believed that Canadian values were being diluted uh, through the work of the government and other parties. And so he wants to start a new party uh, around specific Canadian values. And you've heard maybe Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, talk about Canadian values a lot recently. It's, it's in the air we breathe right now. The question is, who knows what Canadian values are? It's something that we sort of intuit, like we know in our gut, kind of, in a, in a bit of a, of a vague way, but nobody's really able to enumerate and list all the Canadian values that every Canadian does share or ought to share. But, as I said, we have a vague notion about certain values that we think we ought to share as Canadians. And it leads us to this question, how does a culture come up with its values? How does a culture determine its values? Do professors in universities sit around and talk about these, these things in philosophy classes or political science classes? Do they get taught in high school or in elementary school? Where do we, where do we come up with these shared values? And the answer to that question might surprise you. The answer is the values that a culture adopts as its own and believes are very important are actually transmitted through the stories that culture tells. So you'll see on the front of your bulletin a little quote from a poet by the name, I don't know how to pronounce her name very well, Muriel Reikeser. She says, the world is not made up of atoms, the world is made up of stories. And what she's saying is, is that the values that a culture believes are embedded in the stories that a culture tells. And I could go on and on unpacking that a little bit more, but I have to continue uh, because of, a, of, of our time constraints. But let me, let me explain why we're talking about this. The book of Genesis, when Moses wrote it, he, the original audience that were, were listening to him as he was explaining the origins of the world was the nation of Israel that had been for 400 years slaves in the nation of Egypt, which was a pagan nation, which was a, a poly, polytheistic nation. God had rescued them and taken them out of that. He had brought them into the desert, and God, through Moses, started teaching the Israelites uh, where they came from, what their purpose was, who their God was, all this kind of stuff. He started telling them the story of the history of the human race. And the story so far was God is the great king over the universe who controls everything and, and made everything and is Lord of everything. And human beings were created as his image bearers for the purpose of ruling on the earth on his behalf, bringing, in a sense, uh, heaven to earth through their rule. That's the true story of the world. 
That's the story that the Israelites had to hear through Moses from God because they had spent the last several centuries being told an alternative, alternative history and story about where the world came from and what human beings were for, etc. Now, Genesis 2, where we are this morning, fleshes out that story that is, that is given in poetic form in Genesis chapter 1. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 2 are two important lessons. There's lots more, but two that we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, that we were created out of love and that we were created for love. And because of that, there are certain values that are part of our human nature and ought to be part of the church. That's where we're going, all right? Created out of love, created for love, and that shapes our values as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ. So here we go. First of all, Genesis 2 teaches that we were created out of love. If you look at verses 7 through 9, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay. And then it also says, And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it mentions the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now remember, Israelites come from a pagan world. The pagan story that they had been told was this. The universe was created through a blood battle between gods. There were gods that existed. They got mad at each other. They got into a fight. One god kills the other god and then he takes the carcass of the God that he has killed, and with that carcass, he makes the world and he makes human beings. Okay? So creation was like a leftover from a big war, a big battle. So human beings and the universe in which we find ourselves is actually an afterthought. The main thing was the war and winning the war and, oh, well, what do I do with all these body parts lying around? I don't know, I'll shape a world and I'll make some animals and I'll make some people and I'll put them to work in there with the carcass, okay? That's the pagan myth. Now here are these Israelites sitting around their campfires in the, in the, in the desert on their way to this promised land and they're being told that the real story of creation is radically different. That God, in fact, is an artist. That God actually created with intention. He planned His creation, and He he did it in an artistic way. Did you notice that it says in verse 9, it says that God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So creation is not, the natural world is not just utilitarian, It's aesthetic, meaning it's not just meant to be used, it's actually meant to be enjoyed, it's meant to be appreciated. Think about this, like it's fall, right? We just heard about it in the prayer. It's autumn, it's fall. The leaves are going to change color and it's going to be spectacular. You're all going to come back to Dundas just to come and look at the trees around here. People drive for miles and miles around to check out the trees around here. Why? Do leaves change color? Now don't, like all you scientists, I know you know why, okay? But what I mean is, not how does it happen, what I mean is, why does it happen? It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to be the way 
that uh, leaves fall off. They could just stay green and fall. But they change color and they become part of this, this beautiful display. And the point is that, that, that Moses is trying to make and Genesis is trying to make is that God created the world not just to be used, but to be enjoyed, to be appreciated. He's an artist who had intention in making the world, and not just the natural world, but us too. Because in verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You can almost picture God, not like a child, but like someone with, with a a lump of clay, and it's formless and it's void, and he gathers it all together, and he actually shapes human beings into a particular shape, a, a particular look. And then, and then this, this strange statement, he performs some kind of mouth-to-mouth on this thing, and he breathes into the nostrils of this, this clay the breath of life. It, it's meant... You know, is that literally what God did in a literal sense? That's not the point. The point of the, of, the, of the description is to give you a sense of the care and of the intimacy of God's creation of human beings. Now, you've got to understand, this, is, this was completely unprecedented in the ancient world. Nobody thought that. And this idea that God breathed into human beings the breath of life was an utterly astounding concept. It was so unique because what it meant was was that human beings don't just have a soul, human beings actually are a soul. And, And so there is a physical and a spiritual component to human beings that are meant to be kept together and not separated. And you're all like, so what, Van and Brink? But honestly, this was mind-blowing. Everybody thought back then, spiritual good, physical bad. Why? Well, physical is the, the heart, you know, you got to work. You got to work in the field. You got to work in the garden. You got to labor. Uh, you, you, and then your back goes out, and that hurts like the blazes. And war is people fighting with one another, and they're killing each other physically, etc. What's good is the spiritual, the mental, the philosophical. So guys like Cicero and Socrates and others believed that, that the physical world was evil, that the physical world was useless, that the physical world meant is, is something is a prison that you actually tried to escape, and the spiritual world was good. And here is Genesis saying, oh no, the physical world is really, really important. God actually honors your physical body. And look, Psalm 139 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And you think, well, I don't feel very fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, because things sag and, you know, they get bigger when I don't want them to. And maybe you think your eyes are small or your hair, like maybe you have like really straight hair like me. Finally got my first hairstyle. I'm like 40 years old and I finally have a hairdo because I have really, really bad hair. And maybe you think my physicality isn't that great. Well, that's, that may be the, that may be, that may be the, that may be the case. 
But if you look at what the Bible teaches even about salvation, it's not just our souls that are going to be saved. The promise is, is that your bodies are going to be saved. My body is going to be saved. I'll finally, in the new creation, I will get the, the awesome hair that I wanted. Because the creator actually was concerned with his creation and was not just putting it together as, a, as an afterthought. He was concerned about his creation to the point where he was intimately involved with every part of making it. Not just the, the natural world, but us as well. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, not only were we made out of love, which is unprecedented, but we are also made for love. And this, there's no way to explain. This is actually what sent Jordan Peterson into the Old Testament to go, how in the world did human beings come up with this idea? Because it's, it's too new on the face of the planet. Genesis 2, when you read through it, what is striking about it is the personal interaction between Adam and God. God is not some sort of despot high on his throne, you know, shouting down orders to the natural world and to, his, and to human beings. God is high and glorious and mighty, but he comes down and he actually walks and talks with Adam. And so you get this picture of, of Adam walking in the garden with, with God, and God says, so what do you think that is? And Adam goes, well, let's call that a lion. And God says, what do you think that is? Well, that looks kind of like an elephant. And what do you think that is? And he says, well, I don't know, that's a centipede? Sure, okay. And they're, they're conversing, and they're having an intimate relationship with one another. See, our first parents, they didn't fear God. They weren't terrified of God. They, they loved Him. They delighted in Him. Because human beings were made for fellowship with Him. The confession of this church is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the first article of it, well, there's something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is part of it. And the very first question says, what is the chief end or purpose for human beings? And the answer is actually incredible. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Think about that. Enjoy God. We were created to enjoy God. Who is, who is God to you? What do you think about when you think of God? Do you think of God as this high, holy, unattainable, completely other sort of being that you can have no relationship with and you need to cower in terror before his majesty and his glory? Or do you think of God as sort of like an Avenger? You ever watch the Avengers, right? So you've got, uh, you've got Thor, who's a, who's a god, right? And he's personal and he's physical and he can be friends with other gods and other people, and you're so familiar with them, you don't have any of the awe and wonder about this being who is so transcendent above, above you. If, if you watch the Avengers, one of the things that always strikes me is, is that Thor is supposed to be this super powerful being, and everybody is quite comfortable to talk to him any way they want, as though he's just your buddy sitting across the table from you in a restaurant. Now, the one picture is kind of 
an Islamic view of God and, and, and a very high view of God. And of course, the other picture is the Avenger-type view of God. But what you get in the Bible is, is you get this God who is what Francis Schaeffer called an infinite personal God. He is to be revered, and yet he is to be loved and adored and delighted. And you can actually have a relationship with him. You can talk to him as though he is a father to you. And not only were we made to delight in him, but we were made to delight in each other. Verses 21 to 25 outline uh, the creation, not just of Adam, but the creation of Eve as well. And I can't go into it as deeply as I would like at this point. But basically, this, the story is this. Adam was alone, and it was not good that he was alone. He saw all the animals, and he saw, hey, there's a correspondence between, uh, m- between uh, um, a male badger and a female badger. And look, the lion has a lioness. And hey, look at that. The elephants, they, they're boy elephants and girl elephants. <laughs> Whatever, okay? I don't know what you call that. I'm alone. And God already knew that. It's God who says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And then he parades the animals in front of Adam, and Adam goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These don't fit. And then he brings Eve to him. And Adam sees Eve, and what he says, he says, at last, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, what he's saying is, At last, there's someone who fits me. There's someone who corresponds with me. You're not exactly me, but you're like me. And the biblical teaching is is that men and women, in a sense, are, are, are incomplete without one another, but together, we image together, as men and women, we image together God in all His fullness. Well, as much as an image can image someone in all His fullness. Now, I know it says there, uh, thing that people, it gets them nervous, okay? Uh, it says, uh, I will make a helper fit for him. And, and sometimes people get a little worked up about this word helper. Oh, great, Eve was created as a helper. Oh, yay. I, like, all she's there to do is to help, right? Like, like when you're helping your, your mom or your dad, probably your dad, let's admit it, you know, working on your the car, and you say, Dad, can I help? And he says, sure, you can help. Go get me this tool. Go get me that tool. Go get me a coffee. And you're like, that's your job. That's not what the Bible is describing as a helper fit. Eve brought things to the world and to the relationship that Adam didn't have. There were aspects of her nature as a woman in her createdness that Adam didn't have. So, so when Eve is brought as a helper to Adam, it, it was the idea of completion, that, that Adam was incomplete and incapable of fulfilling his calling in the world by himself. He was needy. And any woman who's married knows that men remain incredibly needy. So there is no... There is no inferiority complex that the Bible is talking about here, okay? Now that again is incredibly unique. All the pagan myths said that women were property, all of them. All the ancient worldviews taught that women were property, women were inferior. Yes, the church has fallen into that on occasion and should be ashamed of that history, that's true. But it was actually rooted in the narrative, in the foundational stories of these pagan myths. And then in verse 25 it says, The man and his wife were both naked, 
and they were not ashamed. An incredibly loaded statement that could use a series all on its own, but it boils down to this. The picture of humanity in relationship to God and relationship to the natural world and in relationship to one another was one of perfect harmony. That's the point. Nothing was hidden. Every one of us longs for that kind of a relationship where we are known by someone fully and completely. Nothing is hidden. And we are loved and accepted just the same. This is the true story of the world. That's how things were in the beginning. Now, this is not the whole story of the world, but it is the true story of the world. And Moses told this story to the to, the, to, the, to his first audience to reprogram them from, from the false story that they had been told, that the world was created out of violence and therefore at the heart of reality was a battle for power, which was manifested in, in relationships between nations and in religion. Religion was all about power. You used the gods through your sacrificing to get them to help you smoke the, the other clan and tribe that you didn't, you didn't like and you wanted to conquer. Relationships were all about hierarchy and power. Israel was a slave nation, for crying out loud. That was the story that that God was trying to deprogram them from living out of, you see. Now, here we are, 20 centuries later, no, like four, uh, many, many, many centuries later, 4,000 years later, what's the story that our world tells? Every day you wake up You get dressed, you eat your breakfast, and you go out into a world, either to work or to school or wherever, and everything in this world tells you that you and everything else around you is an accident. Purpose? There's no absolute transcendent meaning. There's no reason behind you being here or me being here. We're just here and therefore there are no absolute truths. And you matter no more really in the grand scheme of things than the chair you're sitting on. And if there is a God or a transcendence, He is so irrelevant, He is so disconnected to the world in which you live, He means nothing to it. Bertrand Russell, famous atheistic philosopher, said that humankind is a product of an accidental collocation that is coming together of atoms and all human genius will eventually die in the vast death of the solar system. That's the basic narrative of our culture. And you say, well, I don't know, people aren't saying that. No, they're not saying that because it's part of the story it's communicated through a story and so it's basically just in the water you drink it's like fluoride do they still put fluoride in water you don't know you're drinking fluoride except all you people living on wells but those of us who live in town we're drinking fluoride and you don't know it it's just part of the water. It's part of the air you breathe. And you can see it not in, in the water and in the air you breathe, but you can see it in the implications. So today, we say there's really no objective truth. We say there's my truth. How many times have you heard that? Well, my truth tells me da 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 
Because human beings, if there is no God, if there is no transcendence, if there is no purpose or meaning outside of ourselves, well, there's a vacuum and something has to fill the vacuum and guess what that something is? It's me. We determine what's right or wrong for ourselves. We determine what's good for us and what's bad for us. And so... The ultimate value and reference point are our feelings, our desires, and the subjective personal experience of an individual that nobody else is ever allowed to question, ever. That's why when you go on campuses today, you have to be careful. My son is in university. This blows my mind. I don't know if I have time for this. Well, what are you going to do? Just get up and leave? I'm going to use it. (laughs) Maybe you will. Don't test me, everybody says. But listen, my son... My son is in university. When he, when he went to university and he got in his dorm, he had to fill out, a, um, fill out a, a, a form that said a little bit about himself. And all the guys in the dorm had to do that. And one of the things was, are you religious? And if so, what is your religion? And he said, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he fills that out. Other guys filled out, I'm an atheist. Uh, one guy he knows filled out that he was a Muslim. Whatever, that's fine. But then the next question was, are you comfortable with discussing religion with others and you were allowed to say yes or no and if you said no then all the other people in the in the dorm had to agree not to bring that up because it doesn't matter whether something is objectively true or not what matters is is do I want to experience this truth myself or not and if I don't then you're not allowed to impose that truth upon me and therefore we don't have to talk about it See, we live in, a, in an age that has become increasingly relativistic. Here, guess this song. I won't sing it, I'll just quote it. Guess this song. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free! What's that from? Frozen. Let it go, right? Come on, you all know that one. Like, Everybody has heard that song. Every day of your life, you're told this. It's in the air you breathe. We are swimming in this. And it's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is a term that theologians use to describe it. It's right here on the front of the bulletin. Expressive individualism is driven by a deep sense of entitlement of being left alone. To live in a way that is emancipated from the demands and expectations of others. To being able to fashion its own life in the way it wants to. To being able to develop its own values and beliefs in its own way. To resist all authority. To be free in these ways, many have come to think, is indispensable to being a true individual. So this has led us to believe as a culture that... um, You just believe in the religion that works for you. If it works for you, that's fine. It's led us as a culture to believe that that, uh, sex and sexuality is completely undetermined. And we are free to determine that ourselves. Because we all need to be true to ourselves and determine for ourselves. And so what we value is freedom. Freedom at all costs. 
freedom to determine what we want to do and how we want to do it at all costs. So you'll see in our culture that people are dating later and are marrying later. They are choosing career paths later. Some of you who are parents of the millennial generation, you're looking at that bedroom and you're wondering, when will my child commit and move on and launch? And part of the problem is, of course, financial and that kind of thing, but part of the problem is is that we are increasingly a generation that does not want to put down roots because when you put down roots, you can't move anymore. And if you can't move anymore, you can't live an authentically free life. There's a book called Bowling Alone. It came out about a decade ago, and in it, the author, Princeton University professor, showed how we increasingly don't commit to civic life or communities beyond ourselves, and you see it in the church as well. People participate in church, and they see their participation as being virtually voluntary. And so I can choose if I want to be a part of something or if I don't want to be a part of something, and it's really all up to me. Now, this has been linked to increased depression, This has been linked to increased loneliness to the point where in the UK they actually assigned a minister of loneliness because loneliness has, has grown to epidemic proportions in our culture. It's been linked to all kinds of physical problems. Our medical system is experiencing this. And you're thinking, come on, really this is all linked to this, this idea that we, when we are the center? Yes, these are consequences. Ideas have legs, and these are the consequences where these ideas have taken us. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Okay, Brett and Shannon, there's the world you live in. What are you supposed to do? You want to inculcate some values in Madison. How are you going to inculcate values in her? I'm hoping that I've convinced at least some of you that the values that the world is inculcating us in us are not healthy, are not positive, and are, are actually destructive to human flourishing. And so hopefully you're interested in inculcating biblical values. Well, how do you inculcate those values into uh, Madison and into the next generation, into ourselves? How do we do it? And the answer is the story. Remember, it's the story. You've got to immerse yourself in the true story of the world, the biblical story. And of course, that means reading your Bible and, 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 and teaching it to children. Like When you tell her the stories, you're not just telling her stories that are interesting and fun. These are stories that explain the history, the true story of the world, so that her values will be shaped by that. And a big one, friends, is what you're doing right now. A big part of how you tell the true story of the world to yourself and to your children and to other people is you come to worship. You come to worship. Because every Sunday, whether it's here or at any true Christian church, the true story of the world is retold again and again and again. And the true story is that there is a creator who made you for a purpose, but you screwed it up. But he didn't leave you to that. 
Instead, he sent his son into the world to die in your place on the cross to carry the judgment that you deserve, to wipe away your sin so that you could be recreated in him and you could get up every day and not think you're an accident, but think I am a redeemed child of the creator of the universe who has been put on this earth to glorify him in my work, in my schooling, in my relationships, and I can commit to that. And you can take communion. You know, Brett and Shannon, they did something, you may not even know how deep it goes, but you did something incredibly countercultural this morning. You said, we will not live for ourselves. And we don't want Madison to live for herself either. And so you submitted her to this sacrament of baptism that said, I want her to live as part of a community that upholds her, that encourages her, that holds her accountable, that tells her the story, the story, the story of Jesus and his love. Maybe you didn't even know it was that big, but that's how big it was. And every time you come to this table and you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are rehearsing that story to yourself again. Now, some of you may think, think, say, I don't like rituals. Oh, bull. You love rituals. You all love rituals. You play hockey every Friday night. You go have coffee with your aunt or your brother or whatever every Tuesday afternoon. You live by ritual. Most of you get up at around the same time every morning. It's a ritual. Human beings are made for ritual. And when you come to this table, you participate in an important formative ritual. You say, I don't live for myself. I'm not part of any community just on my own recognizance. I am embedding myself in a community because every time you take part of this communion, this is what Paul says you're doing. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. And then listen to this. Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. John Donne once said, no human being is an island unto himself. You are not an island unto yourself, friends. And every time we come to this table, we declare that to the world. I am not the center, but I am held together by the center Jesus Christ. 